0: Judges chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to cank them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God, do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of, the Midianites, out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from the epa of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread. Place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realised that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign la- Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord, But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in offer of the Abizorites. This is the word of the Lord.
1: And please do keep Judges 6 open for a few minutes, if you would. When we, uh, when we planned the series that we're doing at the moment, it was back at the end of August, beginning of September. In other words, it was well before um, October the 7th uh, when uh, terrorists invaded Israel and all that has happened since I guess, was was triggered. And I I saw that um, not only were we looking at the Lord is peace this evening, but we were doing that from Judges 6 this week, and I did wonder, should we do something different? Because it's striking, isn't it now? I don't know if it is for you. It certainly is for me every time I read the word Gaza and the word Israel in a passage together. Um, I'm not going to preach on what is happening in Israel and Gaza this evening, uh, partly because it's really important to remember as we read the Old Testament that the modern state of Israel is in the same place, but it isn't uh, in the same situation before God as Old Testament Israel. Uh, neither uh, is uh, that the situation in Palestine or the leadership of Hamas to be equated with the place Gaza that we read about here as part of that area where the crops were destroyed by the Midianites as they went through. But nevertheless, we can't escape that sense of As we read it, can we? Uh, A reminder that we are reading about a part of the world that it's not just been facing bloodshed and war for the last few weeks, Um, but there is a sense of this going back uh, in lots of different ways with different peoples over the centuries. Even more striking that we get to the end of this passage that we've just heard read, and I realised we were stopping halfway through a chapter, and what do we find is the name of God that we're doing business with? The Lord is peace. All of that kind of forms a background just for thinking about this a little bit this evening. Um, when you think of peace, what image would come to mind for you? I read about a, a competition in the Second World War uh, which offered a prize for the painting that best illustrated the word peace. And apparently, and not surprisingly, you know, there were all kinds of pictures of the countryside and of kind of gentle scenes and babbling brooks. and you know, I mean, I don't know exactly what they looked like, but you can probably imagine the sorts of things which people painted. But apparently, the, the winner, a painting which won the first prize in the contest, was a painting of uh, a raging waterfall in a storm with you know, dark clouds and torrential rain, absolute chaos. And right in the center, coming out of the waterfall, there was a little branch. And uh, on the branch, there was a small bird just singing its heart out. That was the painting that won the prize for illustrating peace. And Everyone wants peace, don't they? And the politicians tell us they want peace. But, you know, whether it's campaigners or pop stars and famously people in beauty contests calling for world peace. But what is peace? And I want to say, and this is, this will not be new, but as we come to what God has to say, about it, that peace is not just the absence of fighting. War and peace, they're not opposites in one sense. It is possible to be filled with peace even in the midst of chaos when it's raging all around. It's also possible to be thousands of miles from the nearest conflict or war zone and not to experience peace. The Hebrew word for peace is probably the only Hebrew word that a lot of people know shalom. And it carries connotations not just of not fighting, but but much more than that, much more positive than that, of kind of wholeness, fullness, and completeness of everything being as it should be. And here in Judges 6, at the end of our reading, in those last couple of verses, God is revealed to Gideon as the Lord is peace, Yahweh shalom. That is who God is, the God who we worship this evening. It's another of the names he gives himself. This God who was with Gideon, who met with Gideon here in this chapter, he's the Lord is peace, even as he's leading Gideon into battle over the next couple of chapters. He is a warrior. We read about that in other places. And he is peace. And so a few minutes just to reflect this evening on what that means. And on what it means for you and me. Judges. It's not the easiest book of the Old Testament, is it, or of the Bible? Um, some of you may, may feel that. I certainly do. Um, it's full of people doing terrible things. That wouldn't be a bad description of what the judge, book of Judges is. Uh, and you may remember some of those stories. It's an important book, essentially, because it shows us what happens when people try to live without reference to God perhaps the clearest uh, description of a situation like that in the whole Bible, when people live by their own standards and their own choices instead of God's. And again, as some of you will know this, as you read through the whole of the book of Judges, there's kind of a repeating pattern which goes on. It's kind of a cycle which happens, where God's people rebel against him, first of all, and so God is angry at their idolatry and their rejection of his ways, And they come under his judgment, which generally comes in by means of oppression at the hands of their enemies. So the people cry out to God. And he hears their cries and sends a judge, a kind of leader, to rescue the people. And then there is peace in the land again. Sadly, the next stage of the cycle is that the people then start practicing idolatry and forgetting God again. And so it goes on. And in fact, it's it's more than just a cycle. It's kind of a spiral that goes progressively downwards. As you read through the book of Judges, the rebellions get worse, the repentance gets less, and the rescues become less complete. Uh, Many of the Judges themselves are very far from perfect. The last one is Samson, uh, who is a pretty flawed character at best. But by the time we get to Judges chapter 6... This pattern of you know, rebellion, judgment, crying for help, God's rescue has been established quite well. So verse 1, what do we read? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so, for seven years, he gave them into the hands of Midian. It's the worst oppression they've faced in the book so far. And you can read about it in those opening verses. People forced to flee and hide. And the land completely plundered of its resources. Eventually, eventually, verse 6, the Israelites do cry out to the Lord as before. And so if we have read the story so far, what do we expect to happen? We expect God to send them a rescuer. But no. Instead, verse 8, what he sends them is a prophet. God's first response to the people's cry for help here is not to send a saviour, but if you like, to give them a sermon. Why does God do this? Well, I think it's because to appreciate the rescue which is still to come, and it will come, first of all, the people do need to understand what it is they actually need rescuing from. There's a sense that God wants to convict the people so they will be truly repentant. It seems he's well aware that their crying out in verses 6 and 7 is not real repentance. And their history shows this. They've already had several judges and yet they still just keep on going back to what they were doing before. So have a look at verses 8 to 10. This is the sermon, the little sermon that God sends them. He wants to show them two things, basically, what he has done and what they have done. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, verse 7. I brought you up out of Egypt, the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. That's God's summary through his prophet of what he's done for his people. But you have not listened to me. That's the people's response at the end there of uh, verse 10. Is that right? Yeah. What is God doing in sending his prophet before he sends the judge who will rescue his people. Well, what are prophets in the Old Testament? Well, they are there primarily to explain reality. That's what they do, to tell the people why what has happened has happened. We often think of prophets, don't we, as saying things about the future. Now, they do that as well. But even more than that in the Old Testament, they speak about the present, and they explain it. And they say, you want to know why you're in this situation? Here's why. And so this prophet is sent to convict the people of sin, because while they may be regretful of the consequences of their sin, they don't seem to be very repentant of the sin itself. And it matters because you cannot know God's peace without repentance, which is the gospel. And in the Bible, there's quite a clear distinction between regret, if you like, and repentance, uh, where uh, regret is not liking what happens because of our sin, whereas repentance is when we turn away from the sin itself. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. If we only regret our sin, it won't produce lasting change because it's sorrow over the consequences but not the sin itself. It seems these people were crying out, but... They hadn't listened to the Lord. But they were only worried and crying out because they were suffering at the hands of Midian. Their focus, if you like, was horizontal. It was on their lives and their experience of life rather than on their relationship with God and what he said. That's why after he rescued them, they kept on going back to what they were doing. Regret is all about us. How I'm affected, how my life is being ruined how my heart is breaking. Repentance is all about God, how I have grieved him or manipulated him or ignored him. But real repentance leaves us with no regret. When we realise how much God has forgiven us, we realise both that we deserved far worse than what we were given and that God has loved me far more than I might have imagined. And it's then that I, we can experience this peace. Shalom with God. So God sends his prophet first to change his people's regret to repentance. Uh, There's a reminder here that we, like those Israelites, need to hear what the Lord says. We need to hear God's word. There is no substitute. It's where we learn who God is and who we are. But also that he desires our turning away and our learning to hate what is wrong in our lives because it damages not just us but our relationships with one another and with him. That's one thing for us to pray about as we come to this idea of God at peace. But first, Gideon. God's grace in Judges 6 is that he then sends the rescuer without waiting to see how the people respond to the prophets. Again, that's the gospel. That's what God always does. Romans 5, verse 8, you will know it well. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we'd responded in faith and repentance and God was sure that we really meant it, then Christ died for us. No, God is both more holy and more merciful than you are or than I am or than we can really conceive. He never compromises on either part of that. You know, we think sometimes, maybe you've thought this, Oh, God could never accept someone like me after the things I've done. If you ever think that, that's because you're thinking about holiness, but not grace. Oh, yes, he could. Or we think, God is pure love. He just accepts us and affirms us as we are. Well, that's grace, but without holiness. The only way to hold on to both of these things is at the cross of Christ, where we find God's perfect holiness, his refusal to compromise one jot on his perfect standards, and his complete grace and mercy, doing for people like us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Praise the Lord. Okay, speaking of Jesus, let's get back to Gideon and what happens to him here. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Who is this angel of the Lord? hold on to that question for a moment. He says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon's response, essentially verse 13, is, I don't think the Lord is with us. Look at what's happened. Where's his rescue? To which, verse 14, the Lord turned to him. Hold on, I thought it was an angel. Again, hold that question. We'll come back to this. And says... You go and save Israel in the strength you have. I am sending you. See, Gideon's made two mistakes in his first response. And they're mistakes that we are often tempted to make too. The first is that we see our troubles as evidence that God has actually left us. That's what Gideon was assuming here, wasn't it? Instead of asking how the Lord might be at work in and through them. Now, we know the theory not to do that, don't we? Because one of our favourite Bible verses is Romans 8, verse 28. And again, you may or may not know the reference, but you know the verse. uh, The one about God working in all things for the the good of all those who love him. But we quickly forget that, don't we, when we find that God is at work in the midst of something we don't like for our good. It's a bit like, um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was three weeks ago, we were in Psalm 23 and the promise from the psalmist to God that you are with me. Where is God with the psalmist? In the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of darkness. No, Lord, we say, can't you be be with me, not in the valley of the shadow of death, but on the beach of comfort and relaxation? That's where we'd like God to be with us, isn't it? Is that not true? It's how I feel. I'm not accusing you of anything I'm not accusing myself of. Very easy to make the mistake like Gideon that Because things don't seem to be going right, God can't be with us anymore. That's a mistake. Second mistake is that, like Gideon, we are often waiting for God to do something for us, uh, or someone to help us. And so we basically pray, Lord, please will you remove this problem, or get it dealt with, rather than, Lord, please will you enable me to have the strength to handle this situation you've placed me in there's something else perhaps for us to pray about there, isn't there? If one challenge of this passage is to come to the Lord and uh, confess our sin and repent of what is wrong in our lives, the second thing here is to ask, well, am I facing a situation which is troubling me, something which is hard? Uh, And to pray to the Lord, what are you saying to me in this? What are you doing in me through this? Um, Is there a context for some of us where we need to pray? Strengthen me, Lord, for this. Send me. Not, Lord, please will you just get me out of here. Uh, Don't get me wrong, the Lord does answer prayers in all kinds of different ways. But I think I know our tendency is to look for the latter. And often we should look for the former. Uh, Well, this is what happens to Gideon anyway. We don't have time to read the rest of Gideon's story this evening. You may know it if you don't. You can read the rest of it over the second half of chapter 6 and 7 and 8. He's the classic example in the Bible, and there are many of these, of someone who is not the obvious rescuer candidate, but whom God will equip to send and to rescue his people. And that is what happens in these chapters. You might remember the story about the fleeces and the Jew or the no Jew. You might remember the part about the men who drink water from their hands and those who lap it from, uh, from from the stream like dogs. If you don't, then read the story. But our theme this evening amidst all these reminders of God's grace and his salvation are that he is Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. And so we need to ask once again, who is this angel of the Lord who appears here to Gideon? He's appeared several times in the book of Judges in the opening chapters as well as earlier on in the Old Testament. But it's only here in verse 21, that it seems to begin to dawn on Gideon that this is God himself. We've got that tension in how he's described, haven't we? He's the angel of God who speaks in verse 12, and I think it's verse 20. But in verse 14 and 16 and 18, we're just told the Lord says. And it seems this is more than just the angel being a messenger, which is what angels are, and passing on a message from God. Because as we saw in verse 14, it actually says, the Lord turned to him and said, he's the angel of the Lord, he is also the Lord. Feels confusing, doesn't it? If there is one God in heaven, how can he have sent this visible figure while at the same time being this visible figure? If he is the Lord, why is he also called the angel, which means the one sent from the Lord? This won't be news again to many of you, But it's a great reminder here, isn't it? There is only one explanation which makes sense, I think. And it's that we've got an early indication here in the Old Testament that the God who we worship is multi-personal. He is a God of more than one person. It's what Tim Keller calls a deep hint of the Trinity. He says there is good reason to see this figure who appears to Gideon as God the Son already doing his work of bringing salvation and peace to his people. We're getting ready, aren't we, to celebrate his arrival in a stable, or at least in a manger, whether or not it was a stable, in Bethlehem. That is not Jesus' first appearance in the Bible. He was doing his work long before that. Um, There's further evidence that this really is God in person, in the way Gideon reacts, isn't there? Verse 17, looking for a sign that it's really you. And then the bringing my offering and setting it before him, in verses 18 to 20, which is then burned up and it disappears. And Gideon knows for sure who he's been talking to. Ah, he says, or alas, in some versions, Sovereign Lord, I have seen the Lord face to face. And like Isaiah and others, he knows that is not a good thing. And yet he's hugely grateful, because he understands that he should have died after coming into contact with the Holy One of God in person. But somehow he gets it that what must have happened is that God has provided grace so that he can be at peace with him instead. And so Gideon built, built, built this altar and he calls it Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. And given the things we already know about God the Son, isn't that entirely appropriate? You know, we'll be here in three, four weeks at a time, whatever it is, with twinkly lights and Christmas trees and all those kinds of things, hearing Isaiah 9. Telling us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. You know, and a few months later we'll get to Easter. And it's the same Jesus who what does he do when he stands before his disciples on that first day of the week? He says to them, Peace be with you. So Gideon builds this altar to Jesus. The Lord is peace. He does this as he's about to be sent to war, remember. And this takes us back to where I started to the bird in the waterfall the reminder that peace is not about the absence of conflict. It's about the presence of God and relationship with him, even in the midst of trials and suffering. See, on paper, Gideon's is about as unpeaceful a situation as you could imagine, isn't it? the Lord is here to tell Gideon that the war's going to continue, that Gideon's going to be the one who has to lead the fighting against a powerful enemy, and he's only going to have 300 men. That's basically what's about to happen. And in the midst of all of that, the Lord gives him courage and strength. The Lord is peace. That's what He does. What does that mean for us? How does that land for you this evening? What are you facing? The Lord often doesn't remove His people from dangers or difficulties or stresses. And we know that, but it's hard. What He does do is give us the peace. We need in the midst of it. Maybe you know Ephesians 6 and that passage about the armour of God. Striking in that passage, isn't it? Those those six weapons that Paul describes what God has given to us in the battle we fight against the enemy. One of them is the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Jesus doesn't make us non-combatants, does he? He makes us more than conquerors. But the weapons he gives us are the weapons of peace. And he promises later on in Philippians chapter 4 that when we pray, bringing our requests with thanksgiving, not that we will find ourselves removed from the situation of difficulty, but that we will know the peace that transcends all understanding.